Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. In conversation with academics and activists, researchers and artists, we platform discussions between knowledge sharers, creatives and intellectuals, and change makers. Our mission is clear. Political education for the masses. Grounded in history, theory and practice. Enjoy the episode and please do share with your networks. Welcome to the Alternative to Women's Hour. I'm Comfort Moye and I am a widening participation practitioner. I work at a higher education provider. And today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Aisha Phoenix, who works at King's College London. And I'd like her to introduce herself as well. Thank you. So I am a UKRI Future Leaders Fellow researching understanding colorism among young people in the UK at King's College London. And I'm also a social justice lecturer at the university. Today we're going to be talking a bit about colorism, black women's issues, things to do with, um, you know, social penalties, performance, etc. I know that a lot of the kind of context of colorism is very American in terms of the literature that we do have available to us. Do you think that there's a reason why there's kind of a dearth or was formerly a dearth in research to do with the UK colorism and particularly with black women's experiences? I think that because there's been this difference in terms of patterns of migration in the UK and the number of black people that there are here. So I think that might partly explain why there hasn't been the same amount of research done on the subject because colorism has definitely been an issue. I think that now there's much more willingness to discuss the issue and to talk about colorism as a problem. Whereas previously there was an idea that it was perhaps airing your dirty laundry in public and people didn't want to say anything that could lead to further discrimination or to highlight the ways in which people of colour can also demonstrate their own prejudices. Um, and now I think that, that that taboo has gone to a large extent and people are beginning to talk about how colorism has affected them and to say that colorism is unacceptable and we need to, to take a stand against it and make a change. So you said that people are more comfortable now discussing colorism within the UK. Do you feel though sometimes it's seen as something that is a divisive tool or that people don't necessarily always understand the origins of colorism within the community? I think there are two different questions. Mm -hmm. To start with the one about whether or not colorism is seen as divisive, it definitely can be because highlights the ways in which people of the same ethnicities or different ethnicities, but the same ethnicities can be treated differently according to the shade of their skin. And it can divide people even within families. So you might have siblings where one child has very light skin another sibling has darker skin and they get treated differently. Mm. And, it, and it's associated with such a loss of pain and trauma that it can lead to people feeling very resentful towards people of the same ethnicity or different skin shades or other ethnicities as well. And I think that in that sense, it can be divisive, especially when people begin to air their grievances. Because when people talk about how they've been wronged and harmed by colorism, other people, it can make it seem like an attack on people of different skin shades. And it can, and it can work both ways and people can get very offended because it's so personal. In what ways do you feel actually that we have become more comfortable with talking about colorism in the UK and what kind of platforms? I know that obviously you're an academic, however, it's been something that's been put out there on podcasts and YouTube, in books, but I often feel that sometimes it's not really handled with much care. Do you have any comment about that? I would say that I don't spend a lot of time on social media. However, it can be quite horrible to see the ways in which people talk about skin shade and talk about colorism. And you have on the one hand, team light skin, team dark skin, and people can be quite childish around thinking about skin shades and about divisiveness, setting themselves against each other as if they're in different camps in a war, which I think is really 
quite depressing. But then obviously there are those who are critical of colorism and talk about the importance of recognizing that all skin shades can be beautiful, of highlighting the fact that people with dark skin can be beautiful and that it's very problematic to be treating each other differently based upon skin shade and calling it out when they see it. So that can be very helpful as well. I think that also in the online spaces, you have people who make claims such as, I only like people with light skin, but it's a preference. So it's <laughs> nothing to do with colorism. It's just, that's my personal preference, like whether I like hot chocolate or coffee. And I, I would argue that that's very problematic because it fails to look at the history of colorism and the ways in which that the prejudice itself informs those choices. It's not just a choice made in a vacuum. Right, exactly. And it's so important, isn't it, to unpack why we like the things we like, whether that's food, people, histories, we're all kind of sometimes programmed in a certain way. But as you said, we don't exist in, in a vacuum. So in recent years, there's been an upsurge in dark skin appreciation, both on and offline. From your own experiences and research, do you feel like this is proof of progress or should we be more critical? So it'd be wonderful to say this is definitely proof of progress. However, I think we need to be a bit more cautious because we've had movements like this in the past. In the 1960s and 1970s, the Black Power Movement, there was a real celebration of dark skin, black skin, be black is beautiful, natural hair. Yeah. However, that wasn't sustained. And so at this moment, it's great that we have people thinking about dark skin as, as beautiful and trying to highlight that and, and challenging colorism. It's not clear whether or not this will be something that's sustained this time around. From my experiences, there's a lot of a lot of prolific people in the UK, for example, actors and rappers and, you know, people in the public eye who at current are really peddling black empowerment, black owned, black appreciation, etc. And yet have some really troubled histories about their own kind of participation in things like colorism and featureism, et cetera, within the community. Do you have anything, any comments or any interesting things you'd like to say about that? So that's really a really good question. What I'd be interested to know is whether or not it's genuine, because people can have problematic views and then get educated, do some research, learn about about the issue of colorism and then change their, their perspectives. If that happens, then that's good, because that's what we want. We, want. we don't want people to be colorist and stay that way their whole lives. So if those people in the public eye had colorist views, have had, had an opportunity to learn more and then have changed their perspectives and are now promoting something else that they genuinely believe in, I think that's a very good thing. Okay. If it's playing lip service to, to black is beautiful, dark is beautiful type of um, narratives because they're popular and they want to get to benefit from that popularity, then I think it's much more problematic and rather cynical. But it depends from individual to individual whether what's motivating them. Yeah, I agree. And actually that brings us into a really um, kind of integral part of colorism, which is the gendered aspect of it. Because as I was just mentioning, um, it's more so male figures that we see in the public eye who have conversations about preferences, colorism, body shape, etc. And it kind of always seems to be in terms of the negative sense from black male figures. Colorism is a gendered phenomenon. And in the sense that it's felt and its impact and its consequences are felt differently in a gendered regard and also along a spectrum because it's not just black and white. In your work, in your research, you interviewed black men on their experiences of colorism, which I thought was really interesting in terms of the, some of them had seen to 
have changed their minds from what they used to believe. And in one of the interviews, I thought it was really interesting because one of them had mentioned, it almost seemed as a way to atone um, in terms of a newfound appreciation. And maybe I'm being very cynical, but it almost seems sometimes as a way of atonement for um, people who formerly have had colorist views, i.e. do not see the value or do not find people to be of the same shade or darker than themselves as being attractive. Did anything kind of surprise you when you were interviewing these participants in your research? I think, and this is interesting, because I did this research with Dr. Nadia Craddock, um, and I was surprised by something which I shouldn't have been. So I was one of the things I was surprised by was that some of the participants, some of the male participants, talked about being called ugly by black um, women in, or black girls in their school. Now, why would I find that surprising when, when I was at school, I saw black girls doing that to, to black uh, young men. So there was no reason to be surprised by that, but I was a bit surprised because there's so many narratives around colorism being an issue that's men per perpetuating colorism against women particularly and the power dynamics that I, I just hadn't really thought enough about it. But that was something I found a little bit surprising. Also, the way in which the young, some of the men were able to articulate being the fact that they were colorist to others as well as subjected to colorism themselves. They were, it was that complexity. They were very, very... I'm articulate about it and being able to explain that complicated positioning between being subjected to a prejudice and also perpetuating it. And I thought that was, I was really surprised by how well they were able to articulate that complex positioning. Hmm. That does. It, I do think it's really interesting because, as you said, the narrative oftentimes is women showing their experiences of colorism, um, and sometimes I do feel that perhaps, like with other topics to do with within the black community, there are certain narratives that are just more prevalent which is that black you know regarding black women's mental health um black women's experiences of colorism etc and i think that i wanted to ask you if you felt that it's although that anyone can be subjected to colorism people who are not part of the black community etc colorism is a global phenomenon um but do you feel that the consequences are felt differently from men than they are from women for example, the fact that beauty is social capital and so therefore being quote unquote ugly or being dark and sometimes they're seen as synonymous within the community has more impact on women than it does on men. So I think colorism does have different differential impacts depending on whether you're a woman or a man, so depending on gender more precisely. However, I think that it it works in different ways. So as you highlighted, it's really important to recognise the way, take an intersectional approach and recognise the way that women are positioned, women with dark skin are positioned as women in a patriarchal society and subjected to sexism as well. And the fact that skin shade for women particularly is seen as social capital, like you just mentioned. And that's really important to think about how that positions them and even our own participants suggested at the bottom of hierarchies of skin shade. But then you've also got to think about the, the penalties and impact for black men who have stereotypes around black men being seen as threatening and scary. And then having dark skin making you seem even more threatening and scary and that exacerbating those prejudices and the real life consequences of that in terms of violence, perhaps, or in terms of um, being targeted by police. So it has different impacts in different ways, but it is really important to recognise the way in which women are affected. Yeah. So, I mean, going back on that. I think that it's obviously a psychological thing, first and foremost, for any person who's subjected to colorism, both who anyone who's a beneficiary, but also someone who is a loser in that regard as well. I remember there was a Channel 4 documentary that was looking at black male strippers and it was interviewing, it was following around black men who work in a strip club. One of them mentioned 
that it was kind of a privilege, like in terms of it's they're more attractive because of their dark skin, for example. And I know that within our community, I know what I'm going to say might be a bit contentious is I do feel that there is a preference for women, black women preferring men who are darker skinned. However, I don't feel that the is reciprocated. I don't feel that the appreciation for dark skinned black women is the same as it is for black women wanting darker skinned men. And I think that there are several reasons for that. Because I do think that obviously dark skin is seen as something that is masculine. And so in an attempt to feminize oneself, being associated with somebody romantically who is darker than you, in a sense, feminizes yourself. You know, that's how a lot of people do see it. But although it's not really spoken about that much, in terms of the material consequences of colorism, where there have been several black men who have mentioned that they love being dark skinned because it makes them, it's, I literally heard this, his sex, this, his sexual advantage of being darker skinned. Do you feel that actually it's been flipped on its head as black men re-sexualizing themselves after being fetishized for their dark skin? Oh, that's, I didn't think that was the question you were going to come to. That's really interesting. I would, from our research, we had only um, nine p men participants and eight of them were black and one was mixed race, okay. black and white. And some of those participants did, though, highlight the fact that having dark skin was associated with being masculine, as we've already discussed, and that they were sometimes objectified, particularly by white women, because they were seen, they were seen as the stereotype of tall, dark, handsome and, and very virile. Um, and that they found that quite unpleasant. So I think that it, it can depend on how the men position themselves, whether or not they like to be objectified in that way. But I think it's problematic, the idea that people are objectifying others because of how how they look. And I can understand why people would want to benefit from from that if it leads to advantages in the relationship market. But I think it's also I think just as, as when mixed race women are fetishized and seen as desirable, there are issues with that. And our participants are mixed race women participants. Many of them highlighted that as problematic, too. In terms of the material impact and the consequences of colorism, do we feel that in the same way, similar to racism, that unfortunately black people cannot undo racism, people of color cannot do un undo racism because simply we're not, we're only victims rather than perpetrators or originators of racism. Similarly with colorism, there are benefactors. And so how can we actually dismantle colorism meaningfully within our community? I think colorism is something that needs to be addressed and challenged more broadly than that because okay. white people um, subject people of color to colorism. People of all ethnicities subject people of color to colorism and black people subject other black people and others to colorism. So it's not one group on its own that can address this problem and it can't be addressed without also looking at racism. You can't just say, oh, we're going to, we're going to fix this colorism problem but let racism just continue. They need, to be dealt, they need to be addressed and challenged at the same time together because they're part of the same processes. So, and I think that it's, there's no easy fix for for either education campaigns are really important raising so you can raise awareness about the about the issues and the histories of them and challenge them in that way and also helping people who are people of color see themselves as valuable and see them and see each other as valuable so that they at least are not perpetuating the prejudice against against others like themselves so in your research um with black women what in general like if you could bring out a few themes or anything that did surprise you when interviewing them what would you say that they were things that came up that you maybe weren't anticipating one of the things that came up and it wasn't just with the women but that was very clear with our women participants particularly those who were mixed race or had particularly light skin 
was how context, how important context is to experiences, particularly of light skin privilege. For example, you'd have mixed race participants who lived in rural areas who were subjected to the most vile racism because there was no one else darker than them, no one else like them, and they stood out and they were they were subjected to more vile abuse than I've ever experienced. And I don't think, because you, you hear so many, you think about all the time light skin as a, as a source of privilege, not that it's only as a source of privilege in a place where there are those darker than you because it's relative. So I think the research just highlighted how important it is to recognise that colourism is relative, even if in a global sense you think light skin is attractive. If there are no people who are darker, your skin is still going to be darker than a white person's skin. And therefore you'll be subject, you, you may well be subjected to abuse that comes from being different, being other, being seen as dark, ironically. And I think that that's something people don't often think about. Unless you've experienced it yourself, I imagine. Yeah, of course. Um, so obviously it's about context and, you know, rural, urban, etc. who you're around, what kind of family members you have, etc. Do you feel that people who are mixed race or any of your participants who you spoke to or just in general, that a person can have experienced racism and colorism in context to wherever they live? And then let's say they are in a metropolitan city like London and be able to then benefit from colorism. Of course, because it's context context dependent. You could have been brought up in a rural area, been subjected to vile racism and being made to feel terrible because of your skin shade, even if it is very light, and then move to London and be lauded for having beautiful light skin. So the same person, different context, very different experience. So you can, and even on the same day, depending on where you are, you could be subjected to colorism and then um, benefit from, from it at the same time. So... I wanted to go further into that. My friends and I are very much interested in public sociology. We're very much interested in people who are in the public eye and kind of the narratives that are going around around social injustice. One thing that is quite clear is that in the UK, the black intelligentsia, for some reason, are all people who identify as being mixed race. Do you think that that's a coincidence? It's really interesting that you asked me that because one of our participants, one of our male participants, did highlight the, that very same phenomenon. They argued that the black people, particularly women, they said, but I think more broadly, that um, the black people you see in the public eye all had light skin or were mixed race. It might well be the privilege relating to colorism that has led to that. Because who are you more likely to want to put on screen? Who are you more likely to listen to and see as intelligent? Well, from colorism, we know that it's more likely to be people with light skin. So then you'll get those opportunities. You'll be seen as more beautiful. You'll be seen as more articulate. You'll look better on screen if you, if that's your if you have a colorist outlook. So I think that that can relate to it. Um, that can be related. So I think it might well be related to that. Yeah, of course. And even beyond the light skin, dark skin, it's obviously a very much a spectrum and people can be of mixed black and other heritage and not have light skin. But I'm particularly speaking and referencing people who have mixed heritage, black and other, who seem to be the face of like UK racism in, in general. I do think that it might not always just be linked to light skin. I think it might also be linked to a connection to whiteness. Um, and like you said, people who are, who would people relate to more and how far are people willing to go, et cetera. And, that sounds and perhaps also people seeing, seen as less threatening. Yeah. Because it can be that as a black woman talking about things like racism, yeah. you can get, called the angry black woman or belittled for being too um, aggressive 
Whereas you don't have the same stereotypes around being mixed race woman, for example. This is true. And a black man might be seen as more threatening. A black man with dark skin might be seen as more threatening than one with light skin or a mixed race man with light skin. So I think there are also those tropes that play into it as well in terms of who we can hear certain messages from. And as, as you said, proximity to whiteness. If you have one white parent and one black parent and you're criticising whiteness, perhaps you have a right to do that in a way that you're, it's not seen to be the case if you have... Because it's interpersonal. Do you feel that any variables such as heritage, hair texture, facial features, body shapes, etc., interplay with colorism? I, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, a number of colorist, th- colorism theorists, not colorists, let's start that again. A number of colorism theorists and myself and Dr. Nadia Craddock included, in our definitions of colorism, we include um, phenotypical features. So features like the size of your nose and size of your lips, shape of your eyes, that kind of thing, hair texture in definitions of colorism, because that, that has an impact as well. The closer those features are to whiteness, the, the more privileges people will experience. And conversely, the further they are from whiteness, the more prejudice they'll, they'll experience. 100%. So like a broader nose, bigger lips, for example. Really, For black people, very curly hair. Whenever someone in the public eye who's within the black community does have a partner who is dark-skinned, I'm talking about males, um, has a female partner, they tend to, even if they are dark-skinned, there tends to be a strife for perfection in terms of whether it's body shape, so people being part of the archetypal body shape, a certain hair texture, etc. There is a different standard that's held for people that are darker skinned. Do you feel that, or in your research or in anything you've encountered, people who are lighter skinned who may have certain phenotypical features, for example, let's say a broader nose, which people might associate with being less close to European standards, do you feel that the colorism or the kind of privilege, let's say, of having lighter skin kind of cancels that out or alters the experience and I know in a way that and for example Emma Dabry talks about her hair texture kind of altering her experience of colorism or racism because she has a a coarser hair texture than people expect quote-unquote people of mixed heritage to have do you feel that in the same way features such as you know nose body type etc whatever it might be alter the experience for people even if they do have lighter skin so I think if you think about hierarchies and again, our, our participants did do this. So if you think about hierarchies, which is something that our participants did do, you'll end up thinking about, obviously, intersectionally, there are lots of other factors that will have an impact. But if you take those, if you leave those to one side and just look at how people look, you'll find that someone who looks closest to whiteness in terms of their skin shade and then the straight hair and then facial features will be higher up the hierarchy. And then someone with the same skin shade but with features that are further from whiteness will be slightly lower. And it just goes down like that with shade and and um, features until you have someone who's got features very different from the white ideals and hair and sorry and skin shade also that's that's dark. So someone like me, I'm I don't know exactly where I am, but I've got a broad nose, larger lips, very, very curly hair, dark skin. I'll be very low down the hierarchy compared to someone else who's got the same features, perhaps, but much lighter skin. So yeah. there are still hierarchies within the hierarchy in terms of features. They augment where you sit on the spectrum. Exactly. So someone could have darker skin than both of us, but have features which are seen as much more European and potentially be seen as more attractive based upon those features. It's, it's difficult to say. It's yeah. not an exact science. But if the features are, are right... Um, and particularly if they had green eyes, for example, that would elevate them in the mm. high, like straight hair, green eyes, yeah. um, thin nose, and that darker skin. That could mean that they're seen as particularly beautiful. And you can look at some of the supermodels and you can see how 
their features which are um which are closer to white ideals beauty ideals lean lead to them being seen as extremely beautiful obviously the modeling industry is awful um but I'm very happy that I do see extremely dark skinned women being even seen as beautiful because outside of that context, we don't I don't see representation outside of the context of modeling or beauty. I don't necessarily see representation for dark skinned um, women. And now we've got young people who can have dark skinned black women on their mood boards as genuinely attractive, genuinely desirable. And. Just it just so happens that that is being peddled by the modeling industry, by the music industry. All of a sudden, there's a resurgence or an uptick in interest of people of women who are dark skinned. In terms of even music videos in the 2000s, the 2010s, we started to basically see black women disappear, and that's now resurging. And um, for example, the music band NSG they have a song called Lupita, um, which is supposed to be, I guess, like venerating Lupita Nyongo, and you know the lyrics are talking about dark skin girl like Lupita and that's now being seen as something that is a positive I think it's really encouraging if you think that young people now are being inspired by seeing more people with dark skin in music videos if they're seeing them in the fashion industry and they are inspired by that and seeing them as role models that's very encouraging because you want young people growing up to see people with dark skin as beautiful and to look around and see themselves reflected in the world around them that's what everyone else gets well not everyone else some other People of other ethnicities can also be excluded, which is problematic. But white children do get to see the world, themselves reflected in the world around them. And you're seeing it more in books as well, books with black children with dark skin. And I think that's these are all encouraging signs and they will have an impact on how young people growing up can see themselves and their own skin shade. And I hope that that is a positive. Yeah. Are there any areas of black life or more specifically black women's experiences that you feel are left out of academic research in general or public knowledge, but are urgent? So I think what we've seen since the pandemic is just the health inequalities and how they affect people of colour and particularly black people and black women. So I think more research into those health inequalities would be extremely valuable. And some there are academics doing that and I think we need more of that. And it'd be good to have more research around black women's experiences of maternal care and postnatal care because that's there's some concerning figures relating to women for black women yeah, I mortality. Think it was like five times or something less, five times more likely to die during childbirth. I can't remember exactly the figures, yeah. but I think I mean, that's really problematic. So I think more research around that would be important. And I think also there's, again, there's been some research now on black women, black people in general in higher education and at the professorial, professorial le level. So I think some more research on black women's experiences of higher education from, from early career stage onwards would be valuable. And also more research on black women in the corporate world. Okay. Oh, that's a good thing. I've never actually considered that. Mm. Yeah. In terms of their experiences in getting to the corporate world or just their experiences experiencing being, you know, partners, being in the city or what what kind of in what regard? So I think from talking to participants about their experiences and the obstacles that they have found, particularly having okay. those who had dark skin navigating the corporate world and the barriers that they've they faced and the, the feelings that they're not progressing as they should be really interesting to do research around that so looking at colorism particularly okay. in the corporate world but also more broadly wh how how what is it like for black women accessing the corporate roles and progressing in the corporate world more yeah. generally do you feel that there are any penalties to pay for nonconformity for black women with regards to their looks their color skin color hair etc so i think when you're saying nonconformity you're talking about to ideas around acceptability in terms of white ideas yeah. around blackness so hair textures maybe even the way that we dress etc 
Do you feel that there's any penalties to not conforming to European ideals of beauty? So it'd be interesting to start by thinking about schools because there's been a lot of work recently against against prejudice against girls particularly, not just girls, about black children and hairstyles and the way in which they're discriminated against and some campaigning against those policies which which penalise black children for having the, the wrong kind of hairstyles which do not relate to how black hair is. And I think that that, that continues into the work the workplace. There are expectations around having straight hair, which might be a weave or straightened hair, um, and that's what's seen as presentable and tidy, or braids, um, and that locks or afros aren't seen as acceptable. And I think that that has, a, has an impact on how women approach the corporate world and what they feel that how they feel they can be and there is a bit of a pushback now people deciding that they're not going to straighten their hair or wear a weave or or conform and that's opening up those spaces to people of color um in different ways but i think that they could be penalties in terms of who should we promote well maybe not you you look a bit too black um so i think that there they could really definitely be penalties just as we've seen in schools but i think we're in a moment a political moment where people have had enough of being treated like that and are saying no you cannot you cannot determine our value based upon the choices we make in terms of our natural hair because it's the natural which is being condemned right i have two questions then off the back of that one is do you feel that there are penalties to pay intra-communally for not con- conforming to certain um, beauty ideals because I have seen conversations around people believing things like braids are not club worthy. Why would you get like braids for your birthday, for example? For example, um, they're just not seen. And a lot of black women have expressed that they get a lot less romantic attention when they do have natural hairstyles, or they get different kinds of attention when they do have natural hairstyles versus when they don't. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? I think, again, it's a very pertinent question and it does relate to colorism and and the ideas that when we talked about the hierarchy, we had the nice conversation around that, thinking about how far you are from proximity to whiteness. If you have straightened, even if it's not naturally straight, if it's straightened, you're closer, you're higher up than if you have that Afro, which is very far away from those white ideals. And therefore, if people want to, if you think about beauty as social capital and light skin and proximity to whiteness as social capital, there's a lot less capital to be gained from having, if it's a heterosexual relationship, for a man having a partner who's got an afro and dark skin. And we had participants- For example, Michelle Obama, for example. Obama, like Michelle Obama never had her natural hair out in terms of braids or anything whilst Obama was in office. She's only, she's only just wearing braids for the first time. So perhaps she found that, that thought that that wouldn't be acceptable or yep. seen as acceptable in, in that position. And our participants did talk about women with light skin as status symbols. And there's research from the United States on this as well. And therefore, having if you had dark skin and you might be subjected to colorism yourself, having a partner who had lighter skin than you and was closer to white ideals of beauty helped to elevate you, helped to bring you higher up that hierarchy than if you had than if you were to have a partner the same color as you with an afro and and phenotypical features that are very far from whiteness. So I think that it's really sad that there are still such real life consequences um, of colorism, but it does have an impact and it affects how people choose the decisions people make in terms of who they can love or who they feel able to love. I wanted to kind of maybe go into personally because I can see that you have um, natural hair, you have locks and they look very lovely. Have you experienced anything? Obviously I, I would regard you as being kind of medium skin tone. Do you feel that anything has hindered or how has your 
yeah, I would say that your <laughs> medium skin tone. Do you feel that your skin color, your shade, your complexion rather, has hindered you in any way or helped you in any way? And also, as we mentioned about the hierarchies, that having natural hair, if you have always had locks, how it's changed your experiences, how you've been viewed, I'm sure. Well, that's really interesting. First of all, there's this US documentary called Dark Girls. And um, it came out a number of years ago. And I was at a screening for this documentary. And afterwards, a group of us um, black women were having a discussion around colorism, dark skin, etc. And I happened to mention that I had dark skin. And a woman with darker skin than mine was like, your skin is not dark. And it was a very strange experience for me because I'd lived my whole life believing that I had dark skin. We talked about how, how everything is relative. I'd spent my whole life believing my skin was dark and I was, I was told it wasn't. I was like, huh? Well, well, well what does it make me then? Um, so I don't know how, how I would define my skin tone. It has always been seen by me as dark anyway, but it's interesting that that's not how you'd see it. And it definitely wasn't how she saw it. And I think she was a bit annoyed that I would dare to say that my skin was dark when I think like you, she would have said it was more of a medium tone. But medium so wishy-washy, what does it mean? I don't know. It's all, as it's contextual. Said, it's all relative, isn't it? Um, yeah, uh, so I've got family members with much lighter skin than mine. And so they, in compared with them, I, my skin is dark. It's very relative. Mm. Um, and so I, as a child, I always had natural hair throughout my childhood. Okay, that's a really unique experience because not a lot of people can say that. A lot of people have had experiences with hair relaxers um, and, you know, a lot of women are suffering with things like traction alopecia from having lots of braids and weaves and things like that. Oh, okay. Let me take that back. I've never had straightened hair. Okay. I oh. have had extensions okay. growing up. Not now. My hair has been locked for many, many years. But what I would, what I did notice was I got no attention from guys at all. And then one day, for some reason, I'm not even sure why, I had my hair hot combed. It was the only time I ever had it hot combed. And everyone was talking to me. They're like, oh, wow, you look so nice. And it was, it, I was shocked. It was like I was a completely different person. And that was very eye-opening for me because nothing else had changed. My features were the same. Still same broad nose, same big lips. I looked the same. Same complexion, same skin shade, everything. Just the hair. And mm. suddenly I was getting looked at. Every, all the, all, and people were talking. People who never spoke to me before or after were speaking to me on, on those two days. So um, I found that really sad because mm. I am exactly the same person. And my value is not in my hair. It's not in my hair in locks and it's not in my hair when it was hot combed and it's not in my hair when it was natural in twists most of my life. There's something to be said for that because obviously we know that black women are very much massive stakeholders in the beauty industry, whether that's hair care products, skincare products, makeup, etc. Absolutely, like there's literally billion, billion dollar, billion pounds, probably not pounds, but like industry in terms of the things that black women purchase and things. It's interesting that you say that that one experience of having that one hairstyle altered the way that you've been perceived. So that social capital, which translates into material capital through being seen as acceptable at work, etc. Again, do you think, what can we think about like the material consequences of colorism for either black men or black women in terms of corporate, whether it's in academia, outside of academia? And also I wanna ask a separate question, but about the romantic world. So the world of desirability and desirability politics. Well, it has such an impact and it's and it's worth mentioning this more than beyond just amongst black people because amongst people of color yeah the colorism has such an impact that there are those who choose to have plastic surgery to achieve looks and to lighten their skin to achieve a look that will lead to them having greater social capital and to having greater opportunities in the world of work in relationship markets they marry someone who's got a higher status job etc so i think those those that awareness that it has such an impact is 
it's really sad because people will pay money to change themselves forever because they know that it will lead to such a benefit. And it, and just that example, that little anecdote I gave you about my own experience shows you just how something so simple can have an impact. I didn't then go and say, oh, I must straighten my hair. Mm. But if I had a bit less self-confidence, I might have done. And if I had done, imagine the benefits that would have, I would have have gained from it, which is it's ridiculous in my mind. I, absolutely ridiculous. And yet such real world consequences. So the, the person who has the nose job or has their eyelids changed or lip reduction or whatever it is or just straightens their hair because they know that there are benefits associated with it you can say oh that person's got internalized racism or self-hatred but actually and having spoken to some people who've done these type of things it's not necessarily from a position of self-hatred at all it can be very much from a pragmatic idea that i want to benefit from the the advantages associated with looking a particular way and if they want those material benefits and that's how they're going to get them. It, the, 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 it's an interesting it's worth their investment. They see it. As. it they, they see. They consider it to be. Well, because our society is so focused around how how people look mm. and about appearances, you can see why people make such efforts to change the way they look, because so much depends on it. Yeah, particularly for women, where beauty is social capital. So just what you look like will determine what kind of partner you can attract. And we know from Margaret Hunter's work that that is everything. Um, the beauty cue in, in her work, she talks about the impact of the kind of person, the kind of income and things that you can attract, the kind of care that you'll get if you do have light skin. Um, but following on from that as well, what would you say were some seminal texts that have inspired you over the years? So it's interesting that you mentioned Professor Margaret Hunter because she's written a lot of work that's been extremely valuable as I've been coming to think about colorism, how it operates. I find her very inspirational. And she's also actually my mentor on this um, fellowship that I'm doing. Oh, lovely. So we had a meeting last week, which was which is amazing. OK, so um, but I think yeah, her work has been really valuable for thinking around the idea of skin shade as social capital and looking at the way in which women are positioned in skin shade hierarchies and thinking about the numerous ways in which colorism affects people of colour's lives, whether it's in terms of the income that they can gain, the kind of housing that they can get, the educational opportunities and the marriage market, all of those. She's done a lot of work, which has been very valuable, including thinking about colourism in schools, which is what I'm currently exploring. OK, so the experience of children, school children, is there a particular age group that you're looking at? Was it just across the board? So, yes. So for this fellowship, I'm working with Dr. Nadia Craddock and Dr. Annabel Wilson, and we're going to be exploring how colourism affects young people aged 11 to 18. Okay. So we're going to be doing research at six secondary schools and we're also going to be doing a nationwide survey of a thousand young people aged 11 to 18. And we're going to be asking them about their understandings of colorism, experiences of colorism, thinking about whether they've perpetuated it themselves, their ideas of what the issues are, where they come from, if anything's been done to tackle colorism, what they think should be done to tackle it, that kind of thing. Okay, that sounds, what kind of, do, do you mind speaking more about it? Is it already so at the moment we've just we're recruiting schools okay so we've got a number of schools that have agreed to participate and we're we're currently recruiting some more and we're going to then arrange to do the field work at the schools interviews and focus groups natural habitat is it going to be schools in london or are you doing it across the uk so we're going to be doing interviews and focus groups with with children in london and also in bristol okay And then we're going to be doing the survey nationwide. Okay, brilliant. I think it'll be so interesting to look comparatively at the Bristol versus London, etc. But also the nationwide survey, I think, yeah, there's so many places that people don't research because there aren't 
it's logistically, geographically quite a big task, isn't it, to kind of quantify the experiences of colorism, particularly when they're not really always understood within our community, but also within other people's communities as well. So that's what's really refreshing, because I, I think one of the problems when you think about colorism is that so often it's talked about as an issue that affects black people and and black and mixed race people in this country. But we need to think about it as much as much wider than that, because it's a, it's a really significant issue amongst South Asian people as well. And we need to look at colorism in all of these different areas. So our research will be looking at colorism amongst black young people, South Asian young people, and also thinking about white people in terms of how they perpetuate colorism. And then we'll also be inviting students of color of all ethnicities to participate in focus groups. So we'll be able to see which other ethnic which students of other ethnicities feel like participating and what their experiences are as well. That sounds absolutely amazing. And I cannot wait to engage with that work once it's over. There really is a dearth. And I'm so happy that you're one of the people who are championing and looking into these issues, which I think deserve to kind of have a spotlight, um, particularly in a contemporary sense, as you said, as we become more of a multicultural nation and as cities are becoming more and more multicultural, there are different stakeholders now within um, issues like colorism and racism and also looking at it in a school context because it's oftentimes spoken about in terms of adults. Um, but the problem obviously begins even sometimes before they've begun school. So Well, that's the thing. But our participants talked about, our participants in the research I conducted with Dr. Nadi Craddock talked about the issue of colorism in schools when they were growing up. So it's why it's a particularly important area to look at. And then they will be the parents of tomorrow. And if you don't tackle colorism with young people, then it's perpetuated into the next generation. We want to put a, we want to stop that. We want to help young people think differently about skin shade and recognize colorism as an issue so that they're not then going to be starting their own families and perpetuating it. And then it just continues yet after generation after generation. Yeah, another scholar that has inspired me is, is the work of Professor Bell Hooks, the late Professor Bell Hooks, who's been very influential. And I think her, her work has been really important for helping to think about, I think about those ideas around colorism and the way in which she's looked at, particularly in her book, Rock My Soul, Black People and Self-Esteem, thinking about the history of colorism and the way in which it's been, the way in which enslaved black peoples have been um, subjected to colorism and then internalised it and then have perpetuated it subsequently. And she also talks about skin shade as a form of capital as well. And I think that's really important, thinking around the ideas of who benefits from colorism, how it operates, how people benefit and where it comes from. And look, delving deep into those ideas around origins, because if you understand where things come from, it's, it's easier to try and dismantle them. Is there anyone in a UK context that you work has inspired you? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that there are lots of different scholars whose work I draw on rather than it being one person. I, I'm quite eclectic, so I take ideas from all the different scholars' work that, that I read. So do you know that you're familiar with the work of Dr. Remy Salisbury? Yes. Yeah, yeah. so I draw on Remy's work. Oh, I see. <laughs> Fantastic. And my my PhD supervisor was Professor Les Back, who's also been on the show. Yeah. yeah. And I just find him his work amazing. So I, I draw on that as well. And different theorists around belonging. I, I, that's an, a concept that I'm really, I've been grappling with for a very long time. So I think about issues to do with belonging as well. Okay. All right. I want to kind of ask more about the psychological impact. So I know we spoke about your research, um, but... In terms of the participants and people's experiences, just any way anecdotally that you have encountered, whether that's family and friends, etc., 
their experiences of colorism in the negative sense, so people who are not benefactors of um, colorism, what have they, what for them, what have they mentioned as being the most either painful or the most significant thing about colorism? So is that like, has it been the self-esteem issues? Has it had more of a material impact? I know that we touched on things like um, masculinity, et cetera, and we know that the color of crime is a real is a real thing in terms of black men anyway. Um, but what was in, in like through your own networks, what have been some of the key issues of colorism or consequences for people that you do know? So thinking about our participants, mm -hmm. one of the really key areas in which colorism has affected them is the fact that it's something that is perpetuated by families. So when you have a sibling or a parent who's making you feel ugly because your skin shade is too dark, it's very, very, very painful. And it's, that, can ha that happens from the youngest age. So you grow up from, from as a baby knowing that you are problematic because you're too dark and you're not the beautiful one. You have to be the clever one perhaps because you're never going to be the pretty one or you're just inferior because you are dark or maybe you're not intelligent because dark skin is seen as ignorant. And knowing that that's coming from the family, the, the, the group that's supposed to be keeping you safe, that's extremely painful for people. And then for women particularly, the idea that they are not seen attractive and as attractive enough by people of the same ethnicity as them, that's very painful as, as well. Particularly when, if you're a black woman with dark skin, you might be rejected by people of the same ethnicity as you, as well as then by other ethnicities because you're at the bottom of that hierarchy. So that can be very painful and it can have real consequences for whether people feel able to start families and who, the, in, if they are able to, who they can choose to have families with. And you might find that people... If, if they would have um, normally go for someone with the same educational background as them, they might have to choose someone who's not as well educated or not from the same, you know. So it can have really um, quite profound consequences. So I have noticed, I mean, this isn't necessarily to do with colorism, but it's just to do with black women's issues in general. I've noticed that, and this is personally and just anecdotally, just what I've seen, that black women will be astute, and have incredible careers, be very ambitious and beautiful as well, in my opinion. But for some reason or other, they're not conforming to societal standards, whether that's with their weight or with their colour or whatever it might be. And I've noticed that for black women who are within my network and others, some, some, they are, tend to go for people who are not, like they're not an, a match intellectually, financially, everything. And I don't know whether or not that does come from an inherent kind of experience of just being lucky to have anyone because they're not necessarily seen as being the standard of beauty. I've definitely seen lots of very well-educated, brilliant-minded, um, intelligent, smart, beautiful black women who don't have partners at all as they as they go into their 40s. Um, in terms of people choosing people who are not from the same socioeconomic background, I've seen less of that, but you have to ask yourself, are they choosing those people or are the people that they would be choosing not interested in them? So it's who's available to to go out with. Because choice is, is an illusion if you're not actually going to get any attention from people that you might ideally want to be with. Thank you for listening to the Alternative to Women's Hour. I was your host, Comfort Moye. And thank you once again, Dr. Aisha Phoenix, for being here today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.